This morning, I want for us, or I want to focus our attention on something that is expressed both in the gospel passage from Mark chapter 10, beginning in the 31st, for 35th verse, and then also from the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 5. What I intend to highlight is expressed in both passages, but in different ways, both of which give an important lesson to how to be the church today. I do hope what you caught, or that you caught what I just said, because I did add some emphasis there. It's our task to be the church. And some of you have already, I've shared this with you before, uh, but I want to share it with you again because it really plays into what we're talking about today. And as I, I heard this wonderful statement a short while back, spoken by a nun who was commenting on the terrible scandals that are currently coming to light within the Roman Catholic Church. She was not so much speaking about the scandals themselves, but how they've affected the church and the fact that the scandals have driven many faithful away from the church. And she said, for too many years, we told people to trust the church. The problem is the church is led and governed by people who are just as much subject to temptation and sin as everyone else. They could not be trusted to be perfect agents. They could not be trusted as if they were infallible like Jesus. But that is how we treated them. And now we know that many have failed and committed these terrible sins and as a result, our message to trust the church has turned into an indictment against ourselves. What we should have been saying all along is to trust Christ and be the church. And I think this nun said something profound in saying that. It is our task, our responsibility, our sacred duty to trust Jesus. To abide in him so that he abides in us, so that we are not conformed to this world but instead transformed by the Holy Spirit, renewing our minds and assisting us to avoid those sins that we're tempted with. And one of the most insidious of sins is pride. The writer of the Proverbs warns us in the 18th verse of the 16th proverb, pride goes before destruction. Today, if we look at the various scandals in the church, yes, the Roman Catholic Church, but also scandals which occur in each and every type of Christian church across the country and around the world, they do not have a monopoly on scandal. The news just seems most interested in their scandals. They all start with pride. I deserve this personal pleasure. Pleasure. Pride saying, I do so much for God that he'll allow me this one sin for myself. A little reward for my otherwise diligent service to God. <clears throat> Pride saying, you won't get caught and even if you do, who will believe some accuser versus the words of a minister? Pride saying, you have respect and prestige and power. You've got a right to this. Soon, 
The minister is not a shepherd among the sheep, but instead a boss subjugating underlings. Sacred duties are neglected. Parishioners are abused mentally, spiritually, and, yes, even physically. The minister himself is damaged by the sins that he has committed. And the church suffers further scandal and ridicule in the eyes of the world around us. All of these are the cascading effects of pride. And obviously, the danger of pride is nothing new. The Proverbs were written between two and a half and three thousand years ago. And they already had enough experience with pride to know that it leads to destruction from who knows how many millennia of the experience prior to that. But today, we are faced with seeing in the news and other outlets the destruction caused by pride every day. Right now, it is at least in the news, largely the sinful behaviors of priests and bishops in the Roman Catholic Church. But I do say again that every denomination has more than their fair share of scandals. But for now, for the rest of this message, I want to make the connection to the bishops. They needed to take heed of this passage, our passage, from Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, We are able. They said, teacher, master, the one in charge. We want you to do whatever we ask. We want to flip this over so that we're taking charge. Teacher, master, one in charge. We want you to give us whatever we want. These are words of pride. And they continue... Grant us sit, one at your right, one at your left, in your glory. Give us the best seats in the house. Let others see how important we are in the kingdom. Let us be subject to all of that glory and adoration due to you. Words of pride. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you suffer like I suffer? Of course, they reply, yes. We can. And finally, Jesus just stops them in their tracks. Those seats of glory, they're not mine to give. And you have no business asking. That's what he's saying. Don't even ask these questions. Don't even desire these things. It's important to point out that it is a rare day that Jesus would chastise somebody publicly, especially those who are following him, especially his disciples. He calls them aside. He personally corrects people. He praises people publicly. But he rebukes them privately. But here, right in front of the other ten, you don't even know what you're asking. You have no business asking. The fact that Jesus chastised James and John in front of the others tells us a lot about how serious Jesus was about keeping his followers humble. And particularly 
his disciples. The reason being that Jesus' disciples were about to be made apostles. And in that apostolic blessing, which created what we know in the church now as apostolic secession, those disciples became the first bishops in Christianity. That is what is about to happen over the next few days, weeks, as Jesus is preparing to be crucified. Peter, of course, was the first when Jesus pronounced, Simon, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That was the first apostolic charge. Then to the rest of the disciples is when Jesus in his post-resurrection self said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And with this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins of any, it is withheld. This turned disciples, this turned students into apostles, messengers, into those missionaries who formed all the first churches and gave them leadership. As I said, this was taking the 12 disciples and turning them into our founding bishops. And the reality of that is they're going to have authority over people. Therefore, it was crucial for Jesus to make sure they knew not to be prideful, not to abuse their positions, not to to set the stage for destruction. And in doing so, Jesus holds up worldly leaders as a form of contrast. Jesus called to them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you For whoever would be great among you must be the servant. Whoever would be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In fact, he's saying, you will have authority, but you have to be humble. You will have authority, but you must not seek glory in it. You will have authority, but you must use that authority to give you the opportunity to serve, not to be served. You will have authority, but that authority is going to require you to sacrifice. Two examples of bishops who understood this, one well-known and the other is lesser known. One is Bishop Marcelo Gonzalez Martin, the Bishop of Astorga, city in Spain. He lived in the middle of the, or he had his bishopric in the middle of the last century. When Bishop Martin was faced with moving into the bishop's residence, a palace designed by the famous, quite over-the-top designer Antoni Gaudi, the bishop refused. The palace is too ostentatious. The palace actually makes the Astorga Cathedral, which is just a matter of a few meters away, less than the distance of a football field away. It makes the cathedral look shabby. The palace is so incredible. 
Bishop Martin, instead of moving in, led the effort to convert the palace into a museum of art open to the public. Then he took up residence in more humble quarters. The second and more well-known example comes from our own church history, Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Beckett. Beckett was friends with the king before becoming Archbishop of Canterbury. And when the king appointed him to be the Archbishop, the king expected to just have a yes man in Canterbury that would do whatever he called on him to do. With that expectation, Beckett could have lived a life of absolute luxury, having one honor after another bestowed upon him, having more money than already was uh, being funneled into the church from the royal coffers. All he had to do was go along with King Henry II, not cause waves and rubber stamp what the king wanted. But instead, Archbishop Thomas Beckett took his consecration and his vows taken therein seriously. As a result, he looked at how the king was ruling, realized how in opposition to Christian principles it was, and soon he was an open opponent of the king. And in the return, the king had him assassinated. Martyred for his fidelity to the faith and his office as priest and bishop. When his martyred body was recovered from Canterbury Cathedral, Becket was found to be wearing the hair shirt of penance under his ornate archbishop vestments. Now as a final example, not a bishop, but as a simple minister, not even a priest, but one that many look to in many of the same ways, our own parish patron, St. Francis of Assisi, When St. Francis was tempted to sin as the leader of his band of friars minor, those we now know as Franciscans, he threw himself into a patch of rose bushes so that he could restore his focus, not on what the flesh wanted, but in serving those God called him to serve. Now, how many Bishops today need to move out of their gaudy palaces. How many bishops today need to put on a hair shirt? And how many simple priests need to be proactive in curbing of sin in their own lives? For if the leaders fail to do so, why would any member of the faithful do so? When I began this message, I mentioned that there was a similar message conveyed in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 5. So let me read those again bring them back to your memory. For every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. People who do not know the liturgy, and sadly this does include way too many priests, often accuse in the form of a question, why do you turn your back to the people? 
They do not understand that facing the altar is not to turn one's back to the people. Facing the altar is to humbly act on the authority God gave to lead the faithful to the sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, which the priest is every bit as in need of as the people he leads. So we approach the altar together, all facing God. To meet this sacred obligation, I ask you pray for me as I pray for you. Amen.